Please turn to our Old Testament uh, passage, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. If I haven't met you before, I'm Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very glad we get to worship together. Exodus chapter 19, let's start um, at the beginning of this passage that Ashley read to us. Notice how it starts. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So, Israel's been in the wilderness for three months. At this point, and behind them are the ruins of Egypt, blighted by plagues. They've passed through the sea. They've received manna and water. They've grumbled and they've rebelled. And they have finally made it to the mountain um, where God first spoke to Moses. Remember, we've been to this. That's uh, William, and we're glad he's here. Go for it, William. They um, Remember, they've been to this mountain before. The first time that we've been to this mountain was when Moses was here. And this is the mountain that Moses met God at in the burning bush. And God told him, you're going to do this amazing thing. And Moses said, no way, I'm not powerful enough. And God said, I'll prove it to you. I'm going to meet you back here with the people of Israel. So as soon as they get back there, they start setting up camp. And Moses doesn't even help them. He just takes off up the mountain, this octogenarian mountaineer. He's raising up the mountain as if he's going to say to God, we made it. You were right. We're here. Now, just imagine this in your mind's eye. And notice what God says to Moses when Moses gets to up the mountain. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Look, I've, I've told you this a number of times before. There are these moments in the Bible that are like um, the peaks of a mountaintop. And if you look at them carefully, there are these passages that show you the whole Bible. This is one of those passages. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, is one of the key passages in all of the Bible that points us at the very heart of the Bible. So think about Israel for just a moment. A mere two or three months before this, they were slaves. They were being whipped and beaten. They were being forced into one of the most brutal jobs that the world then or now has to do, which is making bricks. This is still a thing that slave labor is used for around our world. It's horrendous. They were experiencing terrible oppression, and, the, and their, their children were being slaughtered. And now here they are, just a few months later, still drunk on their freedom, right? And they're free, and they, they were set free through this miraculous series of events that climaxed in the destruction of the Egyptian army that was pursuing them, and God did all of that. And Israel saw it with their own eyes. They saw the Lord's power over their enemies. And I love how God describes that, not in technical detail, but in poetry. 
I bore you on eagles' wings to myself. Tolkien picked this up, right? It's this famous moment in Tolkien where he decides to give us the image of deliverance by eagles rescuing. This is this amazing thing. And God gives us this beautiful phrase, I bore you on eagles' wings to myself. And, and it's this picture, this intimate picture of God's love for Israel, his special care. The Lord is like this high soaring eagle who lovingly carries his needy fledglings atop his wings, safe from predators, secure against failure. Who, who can fly above the eagle, right? Right? He soars above all the predators. They're secure against failure. They can't fly that high, but they're safe in eagle's wings. He's leading them up to the loftiest heights, to their home in a mountain. Now remember the book of Exodus is the true story of God delivering Israel from bondage to himself for the sake of the world. That's the story of Exodus. God delivering Israel to himself for the sake of the world. And here it is. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, that's the move. Deliverance to God. Now, this brings us to the heart of the Bible. God did not just deliver somebody. He delivered them to himself. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the essence of the Christian religion. Being brought to God. God is our destination. And until we're there, we're lost. Right? Think about how the Bible starts. It starts with Adam and Eve in a garden, walking with God, and then they sin and they're expelled from the garden. And the whole rest of the story of the Bible is about being brought back into relationship to, home, to be home with God. Now, then we get verse 5. Now, therefore... Based on the fact that I delivered you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this is interesting. At the heart of the Bible is being brought to God, brought home to God, delivered, brought to God for a purpose. And here we see that God is offering Israel an incredible opportunity. God will continue to use his awesome power and his amazing love to protect Israel and to care for Israel if they will give him their allegiance and their obedience. He's offering Israel a covenant. I saved you. I brought you here. Now you get to choose what happens from this point forward. He doesn't force it on them. He offers it to them. They can take it or leave it. Now just read this as literature. Just think about the offer. The greatest God, right? The one that kicked every tail, right? That, that, that conquered the, the most powerful God who is also loving, who cares for them. This God who is alone 
the creator of the universe, this, this God who only he can be so powerful to defeat the most powerful nations and the most powerful gods, this God who is full, just full of love, right to the core of his being, unrivaled power, unimaginable love, nothing stands in the same category. The Bible talks about other gods, and then it says there are no other gods. What's it doing? It's saying, yeah, there are other gods out there, but when you compare them to Yahweh, they're just not in a class with him. He's in a class by himself. If you define God by Yahweh, there are no other gods. And this God has picked up this group of grumbling, complaining, impossible to satisfy slaves. Out of all the slaves in the world, he picked this group, and now they're poised. In their freedom, he says, all right, you want to stay here? You want to be my treasured possession, my prized national possession? I own the whole earth. The whole earth is in front of me. And you can be, you can be my treasured possession. And, and, and if you pick this, I will bind myself to you permanently, and I will keep you with my grace. My grace beyond merit and forgiveness beyond anything you deserve. So here is God, atop Mount Sinai. The whole earth, all the nations lay before him and belong to him. And if Israel in this moment will say yes to God, the God who has courted them, he's romanced them, he's rescued them like a superhero. He's loved them, he's cared for them, he's protected them. If they will say yes to his proposal, they will enjoy a unique relationship with Yahweh. But it's not a relationship for the sake of their, their selves alone. It's a relationship for the sake of the world. Priests have a job to do. God is saying, Israel, if you say yes to me, you will be for me to all the nations what your priests are to you. Through you, I will make myself known to the world. And ultimately, through you, I will draw the world into a covenant relationship with myself. And through you, the blessing of Abraham will extend to all the nations. Now, notice something here. In verse 5, God tells Israel, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, these things will happen. Now, he's not saying, I'll save you if you obey me. Because he already saved them. They've already been saved. Salvation is grace alone. Through faith alone. All they had to do to be saved was to trust themselves under the blood. That's all. Faith. Salvation is by faith alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. When Israel were slaves back in Egypt, God didn't say, if you'll obey all my laws, I will save you and you can be my people. No, he's already saved them. Already delivered them. What he's doing now is he's offering them a purpose and a mission. In other words, obedience is not a condition of salvation, but it is a condition of mission and purpose. You see, only if we obey God's voice can we become who we were made to become. So let's pause for just a moment and reflect on our lives in light of this. As you continue to read the Bible, you learn that we today have a chance to enter into this covenant because of Jesus' death on the cross. We are offered entrance 
into this special relationship that Israel has with God. Like Israel, we can be saved. You can be saved from misery and purposelessness and the demons that haunt you. You can be saved from your addictions to approval and sex and alcohol and performance. You can be saved from getting what you deserve for your sins. The one true God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, He can defeat every God that ravages you. And this God, He is romancing you. He is calling out to you. And there is no mistake you have ever made that can hold a candle to the love of God that is calling you home. No mistake. And you don't have to earn it. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is say, yeah. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. And what... And if you can come to the place to really know that what you really are is a fraud, that like Israel, you are a grumbling, complaining, impossible to satisfy person, that you are capable of sinning against the people who love you the most, that, that you are a hurt, scared, ungrateful, unfaithful, prideful, angry, lazy, greedy, vain, lying, bound up and wound up sinner. If you can come to the place to see that about yourself, then you're just exactly like Israel and Egypt. You're just exactly like the kind of people that are God's cup of tea. Trust in Jesus. Trust him. And when you have done that, when, you, when all you've done is trusted Jesus, then you are living in grace. And no matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings from it that you have, no matter how many suspicions you have that it was a con game and you bought into groupthink, no matter how much heaviness and sadness and your lapses and your vices and your indispositions and your bratty whining might cause you, if you will simply trust Jesus and believe that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right, and you just say thank you, then all of your sins and all of your failures that add up to death will be swallowed by Jesus, who is life. If he refused to condemn you because of your rotten moments, he is certainly not going to flunk you when your faith wavers. You can fail utterly and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually and morally and intellectually and still be safe, held in the arms of this God who will bring you to himself because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that's just his cup of tea. So for us, like for Israel, salvation is grace. N not something we earn, something we receive alone through faith. And if you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, he will carry you on eagle's wings to love. And your restless heart will find its true home 
which is God. Now, if you haven't done this, please, please do this. Talk to me or Keith or one of our deacons, Wilson or Martin or Eric or Ashley or, or a, a, a mature Christian friend. In just two weeks, we're having baptisms, and it's through baptism that you say yes to God's offer of salvation. Talk to us. You have nothing to lose but death. Now, notice, though, God saves us to himself, comma, not period, for the sake of the world. God saves us to send us to the world. Now, how do we do that? To put it bluntly, obedience. That's the rest of verse 5. If you will obey his voice and keep his commandment. Like I said, obedience is not a condition of salvation, but it is a condition of mission and purpose. Here's one way to think about it. If you're struggling in your life with boredom, with a deep feeling of depression, of lack of purpose, lack of meaning, if you're struggling with questions like, what's the point of it all? Why am I so bummed out? Why do I lack motivation? Well, first of all, it could be because you're depressed. And your depression could be from a chemical imbalance, or stress, or trauma, or wounds. Go see a therapist. That's God's gift to you. If you need therapy and reject it, you're rejecting a gift of God. But for some of us, in fact, for many of us, for those of us who are struggling with depression, it might be a chemical imbalance or stress or trauma, or it could be disobedience. You see, for many people in our world today, who have been saved by the grace of God. God has delivered you to himself and you are stuck. Remember, he delivers us to himself for the sake of the world. And while obedience is not a condition of salvation, it is a condition of purpose and mission. That's what God is saying in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. And when we turn to the actual thing that God tells Israel to do, the obedience stuff, when we get to the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, he starts it in the exact same way as he did chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. He starts by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, before God declares his commandment, he reminds Israel of how much he loves them and that he rescued them. The Ten Commandments don't begin with law. They begin with love. They begin with a statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The foundation of God's law is God's salvation. The demands of God's law are based on who God is and what he's done for us. God gave his law to Israel not so that they could gain salvation. The law is a gift that comes with salvation. The law is the gracious gift of God that keeps us free. If you follow his law, life is a lot better. Amen. When you try to live a life based on your law, 
your ideas of right and wrong without his revelation, when you pick and choose which of God's laws line up with your sense of right and wrong, you're a fool. You're a fool in this sense. You're rejecting the wisdom that the God who created reality is giving you so that you can live along the grain of reality. Our unaided wisdom alone, without God's revelation, has a limited ability to reveal right and wrong. We need God's revelation. That's what God's law is. So sometime take just a few minutes to read through Genesis chapters 3 through 11. And part of what Genesis 3 through 11 is doing is it's showing us the limitation of our observations and insights and reasonable conclusions without God's revelation. Look, it's not that we have to obey God or he gets mad at us and pitches a fit. It's if we don't follow God's law, the consequences are terrible. That's what our New Testament passage tells us. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25, describes God's law as the law of freedom. God's law brings freedom. There's a tragic irony that a nation whose passion is freedom is struggling to see the actual path to freedom. We're descending as a nation into profound loneliness and violence and depression. What's going on with the giving of the law in Exodus chapters 19 through 23? It goes on for four more chapters. God is deliver God not only delivered Israel to himself, he wants Israel to live in freedom from that day forward. Free from what they experienced in Egypt. He doesn't want them going back to that. Free from tyrannical gods. Free from idols. Free to rejoice. Free from the fear of violence. From seduction and theft and rumor and gossip. These freedoms are achieved only if Israel will follow the law. Now how about you? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be not only saved, but do you want to live a free life? Then put your trust in Jesus to deliver you from death and slavery to false gods, and then trust that his law is right. And you'll find deep freedom and real life. You see, in the world that God made, the real world, the world that exists, things are not free to do anything. Things are free when they become what they are. In the real world, freedom doesn't mean no boundaries. In the real world, an acorn is free to become an oak, not an elephant. 
the Ten Commandments guide us to grow up to be what we are, to be humans made in the image of God. The law of God is like a road sign pointing us away from slavery and danger to freedom and life. The law of God exposes the places where we've turned away from that. That's called sin. It exposes our sin, it restrains our unhealthy desires, and it provides us a guide to freedom. The law of God is the living bread by which we live. It's the water of life. It's the light that shows us the way. One thing God teaches us in Scripture this morning is that there is a relationship between depression and doubt and obedience or disobedience to God's law. Look, we, we've already seen in the book of Exodus that there are a number of different paths to doubt and depression. In the book of Exodus, some people are skeptical and depressed because they've never heard God. They've never met him. They, they, all they've got is the testimony of their forefathers, but they haven't had a firsthand experience. It's not their fault. For others in, in Exodus, doubt and skepticism come from trauma. Trauma can scramble our ability to detect the truth. It can shock us into confusion about who God is and does he really love me? I mean, if he did, look what happened. That doesn't make sense. For others in Exodus, doubt and skepticism come from pride and holding a fundamental commitment to yourself and your agenda as the center of the, your world. Now look, those are all legitimate. There are many paths to doubt. There are many paths to depression. But one of the paths to doubt and depression is disobedience. And we should never forget that. Remember Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all people. For those of you who have passed through the waters of baptism, you've been given the gift of salvation. You've been marked as Christ's own forever. You've been adopted into the family of God. And when you have that experience, when you've been baptized, when you've been adopted, when you've been saved, and you leave the path of God's law, and you stop obeying his commands, you will experience a profound loss of being treasured. You will feel the loss of God's pleasure. You will feel the sense of his absence. You will lose a sense of purpose and meaning, and that can lead to doubt and skepticism and depression. Now hear me close. There are lots of causes of doubt. They're not all sin. There are lots of causes of depression. They're not all sin. Some depression is purely chemical imbalance. Some is caused by trauma or stress or difficult transitions or fatigue. And for that, God has given us the gift of mental health professionals and rest and pharmaceuticals. And you should avail yourself of them. But there is a doubt and a depression that comes from disobedience. Did you catch our psalm this morning? Psalm 119. Blessed are those who wait, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Again, this has nothing to do with earning salvation. 
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. This is about a life of joy and meaning and purpose. This is about receiving the law of God as the grace of God. It is God's grace that shows us the path away from bondage into freedom. Salvation in the Old Testament and New Testament is always by grace alone, through faith alone. But when we set up these simplistic dichotomies of law versus love, relationship versus religion, rules versus grace, then we are setting up dichotomies that don't exist in the Bible and lead us into dangerous paths. At the end of the day, God's law, like God's salvation, is a gift of grace. So I'll wrap up with three comments. If you're not a Christian, holy cow, you are missing out. Come to Christ. Put your trust in him to save you from your sins and from death and destruction and from the gods who ravage you. Put your trust in Jesus and he will bring you home to God. Like Israel, he will deliver you and set you free. Number two, if you're a Christian, holy cow. Like, tell him, thanks. Thank you. I mean, just take some moment when we come to the table to, to look at what he's done to bring you home and, and, and think about it until gratitude wells up and you, you just thank him for it. That he would save you by grace alone, through faith alone. Man, that's a sweet deal. Number three, if you're a Christian and you're depressed or you're filled with doubt, consider all the paths that can bring that into your life. If you feel bored with life and a lack of purpose, could it be that you have fallen away from obeying God and that's a natural consequence of it? If you're a Christian, you've been saved by grace. Now receive the grace of God's law. So look, if you've stopped following God's ways, if you thought you could get away with it, and you follow most of them, but you've got a couple that just really irk you, that could be what got you to where you are now. And the answer is to confess. Tell God, I picked my way instead of your way. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then try to change. Try to quit it. And, and that might, all it, all it need, maybe for you, all you got to do is come to the table and say, yeah, I give up. I was wrong. You were right. I'm sorry. I'll quit that. And maybe that won't be enough for you. Maybe you're going to need to come see a priest or one of our deacons or your small group leader or a mature Christian and say, I feel bad, but I'm stuck and I'm addicted and I can't quit and I need help. Let's pray.